Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this is Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is writer and filmmaker Alex Pugsley. He is the author of Aubrey McKee, which is published by our friends at Biblioasis. Alex, welcome to the program. Jason, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And Alex, I am talking to you from the coronavirus red zone here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, We used to be called the Bible Belt, but now we're the red zone. And I'm curious, how are things going up in Canada? They must be better. Can you leave the house? Um, I can leave the house. Uh, We've had a heat wave here, so I've had to leave the house because um, after about eight days of intense heat, a lightning storm will come up. Well, we had a tornado warning um, two days ago, and a tree blew down into the house and took out the power. So I haven't had power for 12 days, so I am outside of the house. And people venture out um, wearing masks, wearing gloves, and social distancing. Um, Toronto has had a number of cases. Um, we're not quite as high as Montreal, which is, 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 has the highest incidence of the coronavirus. But I think people are understanding that if you go outside, you, have, you can't be close to somebody, and you have to wear a mask if you go indoors. People are trying to stay away from the indoors. Because my power was out, I had to charge my cell phone at Starbucks. And I just had to, like, go in, plug it in, and then sort of watch it from outside the door because I wasn't allowed to stay inside. Oh, geez. Um, And how are you finding the marketing of a new novel during this time, Alex? Uh, Great question. Um, What was scheduled for me was a book tour and a book launch and attendance at author festivals. All of that's gone away. Um, so what I have done is, because I also work in film and TV, I did some recordings of readings, um, short ones, seven minutes, eight minutes, and then I gave them to a friend who has an animation company, and he animated them. So when author festivals have had virtual festivals, I have supplied them with uh, with animated versions of readings. And then another time, I, I got four actors together socially distanced in a, in a bar that's dormant because of the virus. And we did a dramatic reading like a play. Um, we live streamed it through the National Arts Center in Ottawa. And then about a week and a half ago, I did a virtual launch where someone interviewed me. It was like one side of the screen was me, one side of the screen was Becky Johnson, a comedian here in Toronto. And then we cut in some of the animated uh, reading And then we took in, because it was streamed live on Facebook, we took questions from whoever was was tuning in. So in some ways it was was kind of better than a physical launch because it would have only been in Toronto, whereas this way we had people from Vancouver, people from Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, people from the United States who were able to tune in uh, wherever they were. And then later it was posted online so people could see it after the fact. So I think, you know, we invited probably 100 people, 150 people. We would have to the to the physical launch, but now on Facebook, the, the virtual launch is being viewed, you know, six or 700 times. So in that respect, it's more people know about 
more people know about the book and, and the title. Great. Thank you so much, Alex. Now, let's talk about Aubrey McKee. Uh, this was a wonderful book. It absolutely floored me. It's been a very long time since I've read anything like it. And Alex, I think Biblioasis has become one of my very favorite publishers. Um, this is a novel of Halifax. And since most of our listeners, Alex, are south of Canada in the United States, can you describe Halifax for us and tell us why you wanted to write a Halifax novel? Sure. First of all, thank you for your remarks. I'm glad you had a good time with the book. Um, Halifax is an old, old part of North America. Um, when people first arrived here from Europe um, to, to the European colonists or settlers, um, as you know, they came to North Carolina and they came to Virginia and they came to um, the Pennsylvania and in the first 200 years or so, those were all royal provinces of, of, uh, of Britain. So New York was a royal province of New York, and Massachusetts was a, also a province of, uh, of, of Britain, and so was Nova Scotia. So there were originally 14 colonies, 14 seaboard colonies um, in North America. And Nova Scotia was was the one that remained British after the American War of Independence. And many Americans, the people who fought on on the on on the side of the crown, were called United Empire Loyalists, and they were given land grants in Canada, in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Ontario, and Quebec, which were the four colonies. Um, still with Britain after that war. But yes, Nova Scotia was the the 14th seaboard colony. And the 13, as you know, became the United States. But Nova Scotia was its own British colony for a while, became independent, and then it joined with Canada in 1867. Halifax, so Halifax is an old place. It's been around, it was incorporated by the British in 1749, but there were French Acadian people there before that, and of course there was the um, indigenous people, the Mi'kmaq, before them. Um, And even though it's an old, old city, uh, it has not often been written about. Nova Scotia has a rich cultural heritage. Uh, There's an island at the top of it called Cape Breton, and if you've heard of Nova Scotia in terms of music um, or film or books, Probably the people have come from Cape Breton, but I saw there was a giant opportunity to write about mainland Nova Scotia and to write about Halifax, the capital of Nova Scotia, specifically, um, because it's a city very rich in, in folklore and urban myth and, and, and social history, and no one had really done it justice, and so I thought, as I was, because I grew up there, I thought I have a chance to try and truthfully represent what Halifax means, or certainly what it means to that narrator, Aubrey McKee. Thank you, Alex. And the blurb on the back of this novel 
Aubrey McKee draws comparisons to Franny and Zoe and lives of girls and women, and those are fair comparisons, but I found Aubrey McKee to be more reminiscent of Dubliners by James Joyce, not only because the sense of place is so strong, but because the narrative in this book is told through interconnected short stories. Can you tell us about the format for this book and why you chose it? Sure. I love Dubliners too, and Dubliners was a giant influence on me, um, as, as, especially as all those stories move towards that concluding story, The Dead. Um, that's what I wanted to do with Aubrey McKee. I thought these short stories are, are setting up tone, and they're setting up point of view, and they're setting up place, but they have to move towards a dramatic conclusion. Otherwise, the reader's going to feel like it was just a little bit too ambient. Um, and so I, I worked very hard to come up with dramatic plot points and turns in the story that, uh, that topped everything uh, that went before in the way that I feel the dead tops uh, many of the stories that, that, that lead up to it. Um, but you asked about short stories. I had written a novel... Um, years before Aubrey McKee, which was rejected everywhere, and I wrote it three times, and it was still rejected everywhere. And I found that very crushing for my, my confidence and my and my, my self-esteem. And so I thought, what I'll do is I'll just write a story. If I can get a story right, then I can submit that, and if, if it gets picked up by a journal or a magazine, that will make me give, give me enough confidence to, to move to a second story, and that is what happened. I wrote chapter one, and it got published, and then I wrote chapter two, and it was nominated for a National Magazine Award, and it, was, and it won a National Magazine Award here in Canada. And very slowly, I began to accumulate enough confidence and authority so that I could uh, begin to write the more ambitious parts of the story, which which the second half of the book um, deal with, uh, which is the, the drama between Karen Friday, Cyrus Mayer, Gail Benninger, and Aubrey McKee. But I had to work towards that because I didn't want to... Uh, I didn't want to fail again as I had with that earlier uh, rejected novel. Right. Thank you so much, Alex. And I'm going to skip way ahead in your book, just in the interest of continuing with my line of questioning regarding Dubliners. And Alex, there is a story called Gale in Winter. Um, I'd like to read just a brief paragraph from this story, if I may. This is the last page of the story, and it starts like this. The flurries that floated in the air minutes before have thickened into a blowing blizzard, sucking light from the room and warmth from the hardwood floor. The room lights dim as the furnace surges somewhere below, baseboards creaking, radiators clanking. On the windowsill, Tinker twists her head as footsteps sound in the outside hallway. Someone is moving with swift purpose toward the door. I am able to exchange a look with Gail before a knocking begins and I open the door to see in the hallway a young man, slim blonde, wearing a blue cashmere coat and carrying a heavy-looking briefcase. Disparate details that resolve themselves into the person we know as Cyrus Mare. He is nervous, jumpy, his awareness flashing in all directions, and I ask, what's going on? Everything, says Cyrus Mare, his eyes glittering. And... 
that's the end of the passage. And Alex, this page reminds me um, so much of the last page of The Dead, which you referenced earlier, which is widely considered to be one of the greatest short stories ever written. Um, did you mean for there to be a parallel? And whether you did or not, can you talk to us about this scene? Um, I wasn't conscious. I, I can remember, I can visualize the last page of, of The Dead because it is, it, it, it is a snowstorm. Um, and it is after Gabriel Conroy, I think the main character is, understands that his wife had uh, a love affair before uh, before they got together. And so that snow kind of has an emotional resonance for him. Um, if I did echo that, those phrases, it wasn't intentional. Because what I was trying to do, I was setting up that snow that begins at the end of Gale and Winter uh, becomes a full-on hurricane um, as those characters move towards the end of that day. And so I wanted to remind the reader of the, the, the imminent Tempest, because I think the chap, one of the chapters coming up is called Tempest, when the narrator is rather adrift in that hurricane when the power is out all over um, Halifax. So while Dubliners is uh, a, certainly a signature reference for me and inspiration, I wasn't aware that I was sort of echoing uh, Joyce's stuff. But when you read it just now, I thought, oh, yeah, I can see that. Great. Thank you so much, Alex. And Cyrus Mayer, who we just referenced, meets Aubrey McKee by a matter of happenstance on the birthday of Aubrey's sister. Uh, can you describe this character, Cyrus Mayer, as he was in that story, a very young boy, and tell our listeners about Aubrey's reaction to him? Um, Cyrus Mare, when the narrator meets him, is they're both five years old. Um, and Aubrey McKee is the only boy in a family of girls. He's got two sisters above him and two sisters below him. So he's, as a boy, he's very outnumbered. He doesn't really have any, he doesn't really have a friend or ally in, in, in any of his siblings. So although this is not stated and this isn't something that the narrator himself is aware of, his, his young life is, he's constantly searching for a friend or an ally, um, someone who can support his own point of view. Um, that's something that I, the author, know, but he himself hasn't learned that yet. But on the day of Bonnie's birthday, her ninth birthday, Aubrey um, is ringing, ringing at the front door of his house wanting to, to be let in, but that family's protocol is that you're not allowed to, kids aren't allowed to use the front door, they have to use the back or basement door. And Aubrey becomes impulsive and angry and wants to be let in, but he, he isn't let in, so he runs off um, to to the end of to the end of the block to the Halifax School for the Blind, and there in the playground for the Halifax School for the Blind, he finds someone who seems to share with him his own sense of the magic of possibility in his neighborhood and in life um, generally, and that begins a friendship which. Uh, continues for 15 years or so until the night of the hurricane that we talked about a second ago. Um, but, but yes, Cyrus Mayer represents possibility, he represents magic, and he represents a coherence 
for the narrator's point of view. This, these are things that he, the narrator, doesn't know specifically, but it's something that I, I know as the author. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Alex. And listeners, we are going to pause for a moment for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Alex Pugsley. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Alex Pugsley, author of Aubrey McKee, published by the fine folks at Biblioasis. Alex, I'd like to talk about the first story in this book, The Ten Recollections of Theo Jones, which is about the fall of a beloved English teacher. This is a character arc that we see a few times in Aubrey McKee, and I'm hoping you can tell us why you chose to open with this story and how it sets us up for everything that is to come. Um, that's a very good question, and one that I haven't thought in too much detail about. Um, the that sto- what I was doing in the um, in the organization of the book. The book is told in the beginning in self-contained short stories. So the first chapter, as you said, is about a beloved English teacher that moves to um, a friend's father. Then it moves to the narrator's uncle. And then slowly it becomes about the narrator's interaction with his closest intimates. In the beginning, he's talking about people whom he knows or knows of, but he doesn't have enormous interaction with them. Um, And that was a narrative strategy I was using because the stuff that was sort of hot material or or was still kind of um, emotional for me, I thought I have to wait I would have to uh, build myself up to write about it. But there is a thematic um, relationship to the rest of the book because Theo Jones represents a culture and an attitude that in some ways is... Uh, is passing. It's superannuated. It's no longer relevant. And there are things in Halifax, as there are in things uh, probably in Raleigh, North Carolina, where there are traditions that you in, in inherit, but but need to be questioned. Um, and so Theo Jones represents someone who could be a certain way but the way he is 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 no longer appropriate or no longer relevant and people have to put into question um, a teacher however talented he is is also something of sexually inappropriate with students Um, and there as the narrator moves through each chapter in each story he begins to question many of the myths that he uh, that he has inherited 
And so by the time he gets to the end of the book, he, because of the events of the last day on that hurricane, he decides to reject the values of Halifax and he leaves Halifax, never never to return. Um, and because this is the first book in a series, the first book is about Halifax and subsequent books are about other places. Um, so that first chapter introduces the scene of questioning received authority, I, I suppose. Uh, that sounds a little bit on the nose and a little bit blunt, but I think that that's a legitimate um, observation. Yeah, and building off of that observation a little bit, I would like to mention the next story, Dr. B and the character Dr. Benninger in particular. Uh, we learn through this story not only about um Dr. B, uh, but about the people populating the town. Um, we learn about Dr. Benninger and his wife and Aubrey's parents by way of how they respond to these characters. Um, can you tell us what we can learn about the city through how its inhabitants treat Dr. Benninger, um, hearkening back a little bit to Theo Jones as well? Um, sure. I don't know if, if you have this in Raleigh, North Carolina, you can tell me. There is a phrase, well, it's being picked up by a Broadway musical called Come From Away. Um, do you have in Raleigh a, a way of describing people who are not from North Carolina but who arrive? Um, and, 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 you know, so they're, they're, they might arrive from another part of the United States? Oh. Do you have a phrase for that? You know, um... The, I'll tell you, the last two places I've lived were San Francisco, which no one who lives there is from there, and it's sort of the same thing in Raleigh because we are we have three very, very large universities uh, in our area, so almost no one who lives here is from here, so we don't really have a phrase um, for that, and the phrase I'm looking for is on the tip of my tongue that I can't right. call it. Well, C.O. Jones and uh, Dr. Benninger, Gail's father, they're both come from a ways. That means that they didn't, they weren't born in Halifax, they weren't born in the, uh, the, the, the maritime provinces of, no, uh, of Canada. Mm -hmm. the, I'll just let your listeners know because they probably won't be up on this, but the, the three maritime provinces of Canada are Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island. And those are very tight, that's, that's quite a tight community. For example, right now, there's the, uh, um, those provinces have a bubble uh, for coronavirus, so you're allowed to go from province to province, but if you're in Ontario, I mean, if I want to return to Nova Scotia this summer, I would have to quarantine for 14 days mm -hmm. when I arrived, and only then would I be able to um, to, to mingle with other, with other people. So those provinces are very tight, and people who arrive in like C.O. Jones, who's an Englishman, or Dr. Benninger, who's originally from Poland, um, those people will, would be regarded, well, with, with respect, but probably some suspicion, just because, you know, humans are insular. And so he, the, the, the gentry of Halifax, um, which the narrator happens to be from, they're going to look uh, with some suspicion at every choice that Dr. Benninger makes. What if he wears an ascot, or if he wears a straw boater, or if, he, if he's president of the Bordeaux Society? To, all of those details are going to be construed 
um, and understood because he's from Poland. Um, they, there is kind of an, I don't, now I feel like I'm swagging my own province, but I think people are like that everywhere in terms of, are you from my town or are you from a different town? And, and so you try and find, people sometimes try and find difference and, and that can have good outcomes and sometimes that can have terrible outcomes. Right. Thank you, Alex. And I next want to talk about a line in this story, Dr. B, and this is the uh, American and me coming out. And that line is, these situations would excite an orange-colored rebellion, rebelliousness in me that I was at pains to disguise. And my attention, of course, was drawn to orange-colored, as that is often how our president is described in the United States. Alex, <laughs> why orange-colored rebelliousness? Um, that, that's a good question. The narrator has synesthesia, so he gets, when he's ultra-emotional, um, he gets his senses mixed up. So things that you wouldn't normally associate with a color, like like anger, is for him orange or somebody's voice sounds yellow well it's i think i think dr benninger's voice is is described as 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 being sort of yellow voiced remarks um so the narrator isn't always aware of when he's spilling into other senses um it's just that that's the way that he is and and people in my family are like that um so it wasn't a a reference to the 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 current white house um it was just the narrator's issues with synesthesia where his senses get mixed up right thank you so much alex um You alluded to this a little bit earlier, uh, but at the end of this book, Aubrey McKee, it says, end book one. So this is, you said, going to be a series. Can you tell us about the plans for the future? Sure. Um, When I submitted the manuscript to Biblioasis, uh, which was two years ago now, July 2018, um, I was thinking that there would be a sequel to this. And so I delivered a first draft of the second book, which is provisionally titled The Education of Aubrey McKee, which takes place when Aubrey is a, has left Halifax and has arrived in Toronto as a young man. Um, and I'm scheduled to do the edit of that this summer in autumn. And as I was, as I've been working on that, I realized that the, series can be extended further exactly how many volumes I'm not sure Um, but in this time because my day job is is working as a screenwriter for television we're not going to be making a lot of live action television if you were making animation I think you'd have a gig Hmm. but right now with coronavirus we're still trying to figure out how to make live action film and television Um, so I thought while I have this time to continue with uh, with fiction because people are buying books and um, you know and and if the reception to this first book is good and I'm so glad that you've liked it then I think why not keep going right thank you so much Alex and finally 
because we are in Raleigh, North Carolina, I have to ask about the final passage when Aubrey states that he will leave Nova Scotia. Uh, and Aub- Aubrey says, I decided there was more to the world than what my hometown was interested in. Hometowns for a 20-something could be like that. I could have just as easily looked down on Rochester or Pittsburgh or Raleigh. Um, why these cities and why Raleigh specifically? Um, I just want to point out the narrator says he's looking down because he happens to be in an airplane flying away from Halifax and he's looking at the lights of the city. So he's looking, literally looking down from mm-hmm. from uh, 20,000 feet in the, air, in the yes. air. Why did I choose those cities? Um, I remember changing those cities a lot. Uh, I remember um, Savannah was on that list for a while, but I decided to go with the ones that ended up because I have visited all of those cities and I wanted to talk about cities that um, that I personally had traveled to. And also, I feel that, you know, there are... When people think of North America, they sort of think of the big eight or ten cities. But just as interesting to me it are the lives and livelihoods of the people who grow up in, in a mid-sized city like Rochester or Raleigh or Halifax, Nova Scotia, um, or, you know, Red Deer, Alberta, or Winnipeg, Manitoba, or Sacramento, California. There's a lot of life that's lived in North America that... Um, that I think is just as worthwhile and relevant as as sort of the bigger urban centers. So I, I, I you know, what, what, when you read that, what were your feelings? Oh, um, you know, I think that Raleigh is like a university town. And, and just earlier, as I was describing, not a lot of people are from here. Not a lot of people stay here either. Um, so it seems like a town that, that people leave and leave a certain period of their life here so it it made perfect uh, sense well, then to me it does make, then it does sort of connect with what the narrator's talking about absolutely well thank you alex and thank you for writing this wonderful novel i'm already working on my best books of 2020 list and i'm certain that aubrey mckee will be among them jason thank you so much for having me on the show and thank you to quail rich books for for having this podcast i think it's a great resource and it's certainly swell to have um, during the summer of 2020. Once again, I would like to thank Alex Pugsley for joining me. Copies of Aubrey McKee can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one month of free audiobooks and support your favorite local independent book store in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries and this has been Booking.